0: okay if you 'll join me in deuteronomy chapter twenty two we just began to peek into the twenty-second chapter. Last time we went down as far as verse five in this section, where we're looking at sort of some uh, different miscellaneous laws, if you would, civil laws, social laws, how the people were to conduct themselves as a society among the congregation of Israel. And you know these chapters we're looking at. And Lord willing, I like to try and finish up chapter twenty-two. Look at chapter twenty-three uh, in some ways you'll begin to recognize that you cannot say that God's word does not address everything (laughs) Uh, because God's word is going to be pretty practical in some of the things it has to say to us in some ways almost a little maybe awkward and unusual you're going to think that's really in the Bible I mean it's actually there but it just goes to remind us how God truly seeks to superintend over every single area of our lives. Uh, and that God's Word has something to say about all those things, and in those things we can glean uh, understanding about what God intends for our lives and the nature of God, though we may not even fully understand why was that law instituted for the nation of Israel. And again, we remember we're not living under the law, we live under grace. This was the time of the Mosaic Covenant, but yet nonetheless, boy, these are are, are a section of Scripture and verses here that certainly have some very interesting things. So because of that, Lord willing, I'll uh, be able to To read more and say less, uh, and we'll uh, know that we covered this section of Scripture as an endeavor to cover the entirety of all of God's Word, and you get a gold star for bravery if you read ahead for uh, coming out for this evening as we go through these things. So let's pick up here in chapter 22 again, looking at these different miscellaneous laws God gave uh, to them. Verse 6 starts out by telling us if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs you shall not take the mother with the young you shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself the idea is for food that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So again, if you remember where we left off last time, verse 5 was a prohibition against cross-dressing. <laughs> and now verse 6, God taught us to talk about birds' nests and eggs. So what in the world those two things... <laughs> actually have to do with coinciding somehow with one another. And you think, boy, that's a quick transition of of subject matter. There we go from God's prohibition of a man wearing anything that pertains to a woman and a woman wearing anything that pertains to a man. And now here in verse 6 and 7, God gives this law. Uh, We could say in some sense, verse 6 and 7, somewhat of a law of conservation, Uh, a law showing that God cares about the environment and about ecology and and asking the people to be good stewards of the environment and really their food source. Uh, as he speaks here in verse 6 and 7, how if they're walking along the way and uh, they see, a, a, again, a mother bird sitting there uh, with uh, eggs or sitting there with her young, uh, that you were allowed to take the eggs for food, you were allowed to take the young for food, but God said, don't take both the mother and the young, let the mother go free. You can take the young for yourself. The idea, again, you know, showing compassion as well as conservation. Uh, God was interested in practical matters again. This caused them to use strength. Stewardship to show restraint. Again, why? Because if they were to eat the mother and the young, well, now because you couldn't show restraint for one meal, you just cut off a food source. So that mother is not going to be able to lay more eggs or give birth to new young, which becomes another food source and a perpetuation of the food source. So if you selfishly can't show restraint in your life, Potentially, you can deny yourself the next meal, or deny your neighbor who comes along next uh, after you a um, future meal. So here, God says they were to be careful not to destroy the food supply, to consider the needs of others as well as themselves, and to show restraint in their lives beyond a given moment. So they were to let the mother go free; they could partake of the young for themselves. Verse eight, he then says, and when you build a new house, so construction now it shows you God's involved in uh, construction aspects. When you build yourself a new house, then you shall make a parapet. The idea is like a, a small knee wall, uh, if you would. Uh, build a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So here's God's building codes. Uh, so here you see God is kind of a building inspector. And again, in that day, we look at this and why would that be necessary? We kind of envision in our mind, why would you you know, build a roof on your a frame or slanted house, well again, remember in that day in ancient Israel and in many of the mid Eastern cultures in this day as well, uh, the roof area was really somewhat like what we would call their patio area where it was like a, a glamorized deck because it was very hot and a lot of times the areas were condensed to be down on the ground level and there wasn't much wind blowing through. It was very uncomfortable. So a lot of times they would go to the upper level and that area would be set up. They would eat their meals there at times. They would go up there, sit up there and there was more air and breeze blowing through. And so it was an area that many times was used for recreational entertaining and just to go up there and the, you know, the hot evenings and so forth. And so here, here God, just institute some wisdom he says look if you're if you're going to build a house when you do it make sure that you build a sufficient enough uh you know parapet or kind of we'd say like you know like a knee wall of sorts so that you can make sure that if you have over uncle simeon or you know your your friend joseph that he doesn't go falling off of your roof and then all of a sudden you become guilty because he got a little too close and you know didn't uh, keep his bearings and accidentally fell off of the roof of your uh, deck area above and have that guild of bloodshed so here God institutes some some construction uh, in, in principles in regards to how they would build verse 9 through 11 he says you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed. So again, you could sow different seeds, but you weren't to mix together different types of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. That is cross-contamination, and then it causes complications agriculturally. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey, two different animals, two different temperaments and natures, you shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. Again, doesn't say you couldn't wear wool. And doesn't say you couldn't wear linen. God just said don't intermingle them together because that may cause complications or problems. Again, what God's addressing here in verses 9 through 11 is they were not to mix things up and certain things were not to be intermingled. There was a time when there was supposed to be uh, a distinguishing of certain things if they were not compatible with one another, So God said when you sow your fields or plant your vineyards, you know, don't try and, you know, cross pollinate different seeds and so forth. Look, you plant these over here, you plant this over here. It's going to be more productive and instead you shouldn't be intermingling. They were to recognize differences. They were to make wise distinctions. This was for stewardship. It was for health. It was for good purposes. Uh, particularly it's interesting as god calls them to recognize differences and this is something we all should do at times it's important you know that we don't get so caught up in wanting to unify everything and you know put everything together in such a way where we don't appreciate that there's a reason at times for distinctions there's a reason at times for separations there's purposes behind that the one that's interesting, I think most of all, verse 10, and the most applicable for us in some ways, is how, again, as they would plow their fields, they would yoke animals together to do that. And if you've ever seen the picture before, it's kind of a picture, you know, a, a wooden-type uh, device with with two holes, and an animal puts its neck under each, and you have two animals side by side joined together. And as they would pull the plow or plow their fields, the yoke would be over both of their necks. And notice God says here, they were not to, to use animals in a way whereby they were unequally yoked. This is the idea here we get from this of being unequally yoked, where you would yoke together an ox, a very what? A very strong animal, a very large animal, and a donkey, which is a completely different species, Correct? And we know donkeys are known to be somewhat stubborn, right? That they tend to at times, you know, resist or or they're stubborn. They don't want to move. So here you have an ox that's a representative of this strong, aggressive, forward-moving animal. And then this donkey who has a representation of being stubborn and kind of doing the exact opposite, you know, sitting back on its hinds and not wanting to go forward uh, because it doesn't want to be cooperative. And so God says, look, that's not going to work, Uh, Because they have different temperaments, they have different natures, uh, they're going to move at two different paces, uh, and you're not going to plow a straight line, you're not going to be productive. Uh, Not only is it not going to be productive and efficient in what you're trying to do, but beyond that, it wasn't going to be safe for either animal. Because they were going to cause problems, because if one is trying to push forward and the other is sitting back and laying back, it's going to cause complications for both of them, potentially snap one of their necks. And one of them may get injured, both of them may get injured, and the crazy thing is this, is typically the stronger animal was the one that was more at risk. Because as the stronger, more determined animal that wanted to make progress and go forward would seek to move forward and be determined to do that, if the lazier or more stubborn animal was sitting back and not going in the right direction, the stronger animal would try and drag the weight of the other animal with it and sometimes would break and snap its own neck as a result of trying to go forward not just in its own energy and effort but trying to drag along the dead weight if you would of the other animal that's not going anywhere so God here warns them listen be careful this picture of being unequally yoked as animals because it won't work and it's dangerous and of course we remember 2 Corinthians 6 where Paul tells us as believers this instruction where he says we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers This is where the idea comes from, from the Old Testament, how they were not to unequally yoke animals. Same idea, same principle. The Bible says to us, using that spiritual principle as a Christian, that we're not to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever, with a non-Christian. Now listen, that doesn't mean we shouldn't interact with non-Christians doesn't mean we shouldn't reach out to them, spend time with them, that we shouldn't you know, seek to minister to them and love on them and, and even have relationships with them. But what it's saying is, is, is don't closely yoke yourself together in a partnership of some close intimate sort with an unbeliever. Don't become unequally yoked together with them closely linked up. So again, we think along the lines of course of certainly something like marriage, that it's not going to work, God's saying. We're not to be unequally yoked. We're not to marry someone who is not of the same spiritual temperament that doesn't have the same spiritual moral convictions as us because like a donkey and an ox, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to be detrimental and and unhealthy and we're never going to be, one's going to be pulling this way and the other's going to be pulling that way. And one's going to want to plow the field and the other is going to want to wander off in a different direction. And there are different moral temperaments and convictions and so it causes problems. So the Bible teaches that a Christian is not to enter into a romantic relationship and certainly not a marriage with an unbeliever. I think the same can be said of business. Listen, nothing wrong with, again, interacting, working together, but to do something like enter into a business partnership with someone who is an unbeliever, if you're a Christian, you're going to be unequal yoked and you're going to find it's like trying to yoke an ox and a donkey. And so when you have different decisions and you're trying to handle affairs and decide, you know, what should we do? You have two different moral measuring rods that you're using. And how you're going to measure, should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? Is this ethical? Is this not ethical? Should we make this decision? What should be our principles? And You're going to have constant struggle and constant heartache and you're never going to be efficient and only have a rub that's going on that's going to cause problems in the whole situation. So again, just good counsel. If there's not compatibility, it's dangerous. It's unhealthy. Again, two people can be incompatible for marriage, a believer and an unbeliever, business as well. It's just a good warning and good instruction and it comes from this here in the Old Testament. He says, verse 12, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you shall cover yourself. Now, uh, here God gives this reminder. This originally comes from Numbers chapter 15, where God tells them uh, that they were to put these tassels on their garments. The idea here is that they would have this outward visible reminder of the word of God. And the reason why is to be able to stay on track as, as they were to have a constant reminder of what the word of God said. My wife and I actually were just somewhere recently out and we saw someone who was an orthodox Jew and the young man actually had a, a one of these tassels hanging from the side of his pants. And this was something God gave to the Jews to do. Numbers 15. Let me just refresh your memory. God said this to them. He said, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread, a reminder of heaven, that color, in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So God told them, "Listen, I know the struggle. I know that I'm going to give you my commands, but yet your heart is going to one at times dictate that you do something contrary to my word. Who doesn't know that experience? And he says, and you're going to be pressured and deal with temptations and live in the world. So God said, look, I want to help you. I want to help you. And the way that I can help you, he says, is put this tassel on their garments so they would attach this tassel to the bottom of their robes. And it was to be a visual reminder to them. So the idea was that the word of God was it was constantly in front of them. They were keeping the Word of God constantly, in a sense, in front of their sight. And again, think of it, as you take your garment off and on, you're you're seeing this all the time. And it was a constant way of bringing to their awareness, wait a minute, what does the Word of God say? What would the Scripture say in regards to this? What do the commands of the Word of God say so that they would obey God's commands more likely rather than following what their eyes were inclined to be seeing or their heart was driving them to do? So here he just gives them another reminder of this in here in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Verse 13 now, as we go on, begins to address some of the different laws that were instituted regarding marriage relationships Verse 13 says, if any man takes a wife and goes into her, he consummates the marriage through the sexual union. And then after he marries her and consummates the sexual relationship, he detests her. The idea is he determines at some point, nah, I don't really think I'm into her anymore. He doesn't want to be in a relationship. He begins to have a dislike for her and, and, and seeks to find a way whereby the idea is here, he wants to get out of the relationship. He doesn't want to honor the commitment now. He's entered into marriage. He's consummated the marriage, but now all of a sudden he has a change of heart. He doesn't want to follow through with the commitment. He doesn't want to stay in the relationship. He develops a dislike, a disgust. The idea of detest is a strong word towards this gal. And verse 14, this is what he does to try and get out of it. Look at it. It says, and he charges her with shameful conduct. So he makes an accusation that she's done something shameful and brings a bad name on her and he says, here's his accusation, I took this woman when I came to her and I found that she was not a virgin. The idea is she was promiscuous or sexually active when he thought he was marrying a virgin. This is his accusation and the reasoning he's trying to give to get out of the marriage relationship. What were they to do in that situation? Again, this is a scenario where the, the, the basically let's be very candid. The Hebrew is trying to say the guy's a jerk. <laughs> He's a jerk. He enters into the marriage relationship he indulges sexual activity and then he decides i don't know if i want to follow through with this commitment i want to get out of it so he's looking for a way to not take responsibility he's second guessing here he wants to get his dowry money back so because of that he comes up with this accusation where he shamefully tries to ruin her reputation he dishonors her and he says wait a minute I don't think that she was a virgin. I was deceived. She was impure when I married her. Well, what were they to do in that situation? Well, verse 15, God says this is what they were to do, how they were to handle that, to protect, again, the the honor of the woman, that women weren't abused, that they weren't misused, that women were not dishonored. And I love how when you read the word of God, you see how God very seriously safeguards the honor of women. And that God was always interested in protecting women in the culture from being dishonored in any way and being abused unfairly. Verse 15, this is what they were to do. Then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife, and he detests her. Now he who has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. So here's what's being described here. That night of their honeymoon, when they consummated the sexual relationship, whether it was the bedcloth or whether it was the garment that she was wearing, as the the membrane of a young virgin woman would be broken through intercourse and a small measure of blood would then stain the garment, the parents were then to retain that blood-stained garment as evidence that they indeed had a daughter who they raised that was sexually pure. And that she had maintained her moral purity and she had kept herself until this day of her marriage relationship. And it was to be retained by the parents for the protection of their daughter's honor should something like this unfold. That they could produce evidence of it and that she would not be abused or dishonored in such a way and her reputation be tarnished. As well as, this would tarnish the reputation, you have to understand, of an entire family in that community. Because they took sexual purity very seriously it wasn't like in today's day and age it was a dishonorable thing not only for the young lady but for the parents who had raised her and had sought to raise her in a way where they kept her and then presented her to one young man in a relationship morally pure as a way of giving her over to her husband someday so the elders of the city would then in a sense the parents would bring forth this garment and say look this is evidence here it is this is the cloth or the garment from that night uh, and they would spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And verse 18 says, Then the elders of that city, once they see the evidence, shall take that man and punish him. Most Hebrew commentators believe that the Hebrew there literally means that he was actually to be whipped or to be beaten. There was a physical consequence to this. That Probably maybe the 39 lashes, you know, one minus the 40. So most believe this meant to punish or to to beat in a sense or or whip they shall also verse 19 fine him 100 shekels of silver which was a substantial amount because verse 29 tells us that 50 shekels of silver seemed to be the typical marriage dowry price so the idea is this is probably twice the dowry that he paid in that day and age a young man would have to pay a dowry to the father uh, in order to be able to marry a daughter. The idea is what he was saying. Your daughter is worth something. And I'm willing to pay a cost. I don't take it lightly. She's of value. She's of great worth. And so therefore, uh, it wasn't easy access to a daughter, if you understand what I'm saying. They, they had to show that they were serious and had good intent, so they would actually give a dowry. And in some ways, some believe that dowry that the father retained for the daughter was you know, almost somewhat like alimony in advance. So that if the daughter was mistreated, there were resources to be able to take care of her and to help provide for her and to help her out in the midst of that type of a calamity. So he was to be beaten or punished. He had to pay two times the typical dowry price, find a hundred pieces of silver uh, to the father and the mother of the young woman because he has brought a bad name, look, brought a bad name, dishonored the reputation of a virgin of Israel. And then look at this last thing, and she shall be his wife, and he cannot divorce her all his days. So he couldn't get out of the marriage relationship. He then had to remain with her. And I don't know about you, but I'd be nervous every day when I eat the eggs the rest of my life. You you, You need to be married to this girl the rest of your life and he couldn't get out of the marriage relationship. Uh, that you know, must have been an interesting marriage relationship. Hopefully he was repentant and humbled himself, for that probably was a difficult relationship uh, as a result of the false accusation he made trying to, again, get out of the marriage in a very shameful, dishonoring way. Now, verse 20 says, But if the thing is true, and again, uh, potentially, maybe that did happen on occasion, certainly, so God had to give a balanced in partial way if the thing is true and the evidences of her virginity are not found for the young woman so there was no proof that she had kept herself a virgin up until marriage and the idea here is that she had deceived her spouse, her husband she had deceived even her father perhaps in the process of claiming to still have her virginity when she had been promiscuous or sexually impure then, verse 21 they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done, look at this language, a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house so you shall put away evil from among you. Do you get the sense that God was serious about sexual purity? That God actually says that that is such a disgraceful thing that she had done things whereby she was sexually impure and then deceived and was dishonest about it and deceived her parents in regards to it as well. That God said if it came to light and sexual sin always comes to light, it actually was a capital offense. She was actually by the men of the city to be stoned and that evil was to be eradicated and why? I'll tell you again, that very... You know, institution of that law and prohibition, I guarantee it made a lot of young men and young women seriously recognize that sexual purity is an important thing to God. And it's a very severe and serious thing when you dishonor yourself sexually and you don't maintain your moral purity. I mean, th- this is a, was a strong way to stand against it, and a, a deterrent against sexual lust, that when you felt like, hmm, you know, I really want to satisfy myself in the moment, I guarantee you would think twice. You would seriously think twice. Is a moment of temporary pleasure in my lust that I'm having, is it worth the reality of the risk and the consequence that comes attached to that, well, that's a lesson that a lot of young people and a lot of people in general don't take into consideration in regards to sexual sin. Verse 22, we then read, again, continuing with this idea of marriage and honoring and sexual sin. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, so the idea here is infidelity or adultery, then both of them shall die the man that lay with the woman and the woman so you shall put away evil from israel so again we saw this back in leviticus uh, as well as we see it reiterated here adultery in that culture in that day and age was a capital offense Uh, if you were caught in an adulterous relationship both parties notice the man and the woman in the adulterous activity were actually put to death as the result of that again this is why when we get to john chapter 8 when they bring remember the woman caught in the act of adultery to jesus they say moses says that this woman should be stoned according to law what do you say and remember they were trying to catch jesus in that kind of you know uh, catch 22 situation there where he knew that if he said yeah you know what you're right the law does say she deserves to be put to death in stone now keep in mind as we talked about before remember in that story in john 8 they bring the woman where's the man they don't bring the man around something's really strange with that situation they bring the woman because they're just trying to use her as a pawn to catch jesus they cared nothing about the woman but it takes two to engage in sexual sin it takes two people to be uh, consensual for something like that to be going on but remember they say you know, the law says the stoner. if jesus says yes stone her Well, all of a sudden now everybody would say, man, I thought he was loving and compassionate and merciful and forgiving. And it would look Jesus's reputation of being merciful and compassionate, forgiving would be diminished with the eyes of the people. By the same token, if Jesus said, don't stone her, withhold from stoning her, then they would say, see, you're no prophet of God because you don't honor the law of God. You don't follow the word of God. And so they thought they had Jesus in that catch 22 and you know the story, John 8. If not, now you're curious, go read it and you'll see the rest of it there. We need to keep moving on. Verse 23, if a young woman is a virgin and is betrothed to a husband. Remember, betrothal was the engagement relationship of that day. It was a lot stronger than engagement even today. When you were betrothed, you had given the dowry, you had made the arrangement with the father, you had entered into a contractual, if you would, agreement of marriage. And then the betrothal period typically lasted about one year Until the actual wedding ceremony and wedding feast, which lasted a week, where they then physically consummated the marriage sexually and became husband and wife. But during the time of the betrothal, you were considered husband and wife because the arrangement had been made, the commitment had been established, and at that point, the man was making preparations for the house where he would live. The, the the woman was continuing to validate to the community her purity that for that next year she showed no signs of pregnancy and she was waiting for her husband to come pick her up and then the wedding feast would be celebrated. But it was a very binding, again, the idea in our mind, a very binding type engagement type arrangement. So here you have a woman who's a virgin, but she's engaged, you know, on the way towards marriage to a husband, but considered like a husband because you had to get a certificate of divorce even to break a betrothal, and a man finds this engaged virgin woman out in the ci- in the city, excuse me, and he lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, again, where decisions were made with the elders at the gate, and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, it was viewed just, see, here it is, neighbor's wife, it was viewed just like adultery again. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, I want you to take notice here. What this is addressing in verse 25 through 27, we'll then talk about if the same situation happens out in the countryside where it's more rural. God says here that if this takes place within the city and it's found that a man has had sexual relations with a betrothed young virgin woman, betrothed to another man, that both of them were to be put to death as if it was an adulterous affair, as if there was infidelity that took place if it happened in the city. The reason why it says there is because that she did not cry out. And what God's inferring there, again, in that day in the city, if you've ever been in those type of areas, it is so densely compacted. People live so much on top of each other that if she was genuinely being raped, what God is trying to say, and she cried out, help, stop, leave me alone, and sought to refrain from the sexual activity someone would have heard her immediately because it was so densely populated and compacted, she could have very easily gained the attention of someone who would come to her help and her aid and her rescue. And then it would have been a rape situation, which God's word addresses rape as well. What God is saying here is the fact that she did not make any noise seems to infer that it was a consensual sexual relationship. Because she was in the city, she could have been heard if she cried out, if she was being forced. The idea here is that this was a consensual decision that both parties, the man and the woman, were consenting to have a sexual relationship, which was then adulterous in that situation. So they both were punished. Verse 25, here's the contrast. Look, But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, the idea is he waits till she's out in the fields in a remote area where there's no people around, no one can hear. He's baiting this opportunity. And then the man forces her, verse 25, rape, and lies with her. Then only the man, because it was rape, lay with her, shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's to be given the benefit of the doubt in this situation. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death, for just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, out in the rural area, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was, notice, no one to save her. So this was clearly validated as a rape situation. She cried out in the countryside where no one could come to her aid and rescue and so she was given the benefit of the doubt that she had been forced and the man, therefore, was dealt with severely because of the rape in that situation verse 28 says if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed <clears throat> so this is a young woman she's still a virgin she's in no marriage relationship there's just two young people who's not betrothed and he seizes her notice and lies with her and they are look at the language found out so the picture here is sex before marriage This is God's instruction how to address if there is consensual sexual relationship to young people uh, that are entering into premarital sex, not waiting for the marriage relationship, and then they're found out that they had had premarital sex. Then, verse 29, the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver. Again, there's the dowry price. And she shall be his wife because he humbled her And he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. So God says, okay, uh, if you want uh, the perks and the privileges and you want to enter into a sexual relationship, then God says that goes with the responsibility you just got yourself a wife. You just got yourself a wife. There, you, Because now you've taken something from her, you've chosen to enter into that type of a relationship, which was to be, in a sense, you know, kept and retained for marriage. So if premarital sex happened between a young couple, then the way that was to be resolved there in the days of Israel is they said you were to pay the money. You were to marry that person uh, because the man had dishonored her and humbled her by taking her virginity from her, by coercing her to have that sexual relationship. Verse 30 says, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. The idea here seems to be a prohibition, clearly against, you know, your stepmother. Your father marries another woman, not your biological mother, but uh, marries a woman that's not your mother, and then you enter into a sexual relationship. And we look, what, does that really need to be in the Bible? But what is God saying? I know what people are capable of. I mean, the very fact that these things show up in the Word of God just shows you one thing for sure. God knows humanity. God knows, Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And the very reality that God understands, listen, there is nothing that I put past mankind to do. In their lusts, in their desires, again, the heart makes a convert of the mind, and if the heart desires something strong enough, it will convince the mind anything is okay. It's a very dangerous thing. And we're all susceptible to the same sins and failures. And and we look, wow, was that even there? But listen, read 1 Corinthians. Because this is an issue that happened in the Corinthian church where a man was in a sexually immoral relationship in the church professing to be a Christian standing next side of everybody else singing happy hallelujah, praise the Lord quoting Bible verses and he was living in a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife. Paul addresses it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So God knows the propensity of these type of things, and so his word addresses it, which just shows he knows the condition and the depravity of the human heart, how low we can sink. Well, chapter 23 gets all the more interesting. Open on your seatbelt. He was emasculated, someone who has been castrated, the idea is, by crushing or mutilation, Shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now, what God's going to do here is give some instructions where people were prohibited to be able to be a part of the spiritual assembly of the Lord. Again, be careful here. This does not say somebody could not have a relationship with God. Does not say somebody could not be a believer, that they could not worship God. These were simply prohibitions. Again, and some of this, I think we don't know all the details of where God looked upon the congregation as a whole, the assembly of the Lord, knowing sometimes that a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. And so God says, I need to protect the purity of the congregation. And I don't want certain things being introduced among the assembly of God's people that are going to corrupt the assembly of God, so there were occasions where God made prohibitions of those who were not allowed to have access to the assembly. In this sense, he references those who would be castrated. And again, if you look at ancient history, it was at times part of pagan practices where people who would you know worship certain deities and idols where the men would actually castrate themselves. Hard as that is for us to grasp, as a part of some of their practices and and, and ways of worship. And so perhaps here God is saying, listen, I don't want this intermingling. I don't want you bringing pagan practices and things and mixing them together with the assembly of my people. So such an individual was not allowed access to the assembly of the Lord when they gathered together. Verse 2, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The Hebrew there seems to indicate a child of prostitution or some of these type of things. It's a strong word that's used of the illegitimate verse there in verse 2. Verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite, remember they were the descendants of the incestuous relationship from all the way back in the book of Genesis, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Verse 4, here's a a reason, because they did not meet you with bread and water, no compassion shown, when Israel was on the road coming out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, remember that story we looked at, Numbers uh, 22, 23, 24, 25, they hired Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, verse 5, nevertheless the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So God says, don't allow access of these people who sought to bring a curse upon the ways of God and the people of God to bring, if you would, you know intermingling of other spirits that were not of God trying to get this curse to be brought upon the people. so God says, don't give them access. But boy, can we not love just the language of verse 5 as God reminds them of the story where Balaam was hired to come and curse the people. Remember, every time he tried to curse them, God took the curse and he put a blessing in the guy's mouth instead. And I just love the way verse 5 reads, the Lord your God would not listen to him but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord loves you. And what a wonderful thing to realize that as as God's hand is upon your life, as you belong to the Lord, as God's spiritual covering was over Israel, even the greatest attempts of their enemies to curse them, to destroy them, to bring them down, not only did God protect them from the curse coming upon them, but God actually took the curse that was intended to harm them, and he turned it around It says he took the curse... And he didn't just protect it from it, he took the curse and he turned it into a blessing because of his love. And what an awesome thing. You know, somebody may try and destroy your life, curse your life, do what they can to ravage your life. And not only can God, because he loves you so much as his child, protect you from that, but he can actually take their curse that they're trying to put upon you to curse and ruin your life he can actually tell him i'll take it and he goes let me see and then you get blessed thanks can you curse me some more man can you try and curse me again that worked out really well for me and what an awesome thing to realize that god can take as the bible says what the enemy intends for evil and turn it for good and boy, the same God that loved Israel, listen, loves you tonight. He loves you tonight. And there have been times where people have tried to curse you in this room here and this evening. There have been times throughout your life where people have sought to give you a raw deal and not only can God protect you from it, but God can actually bless and prosper you all the more as the result of evil that's trying to be done to you because He loves you. And He'll work in those wonderful ways. How awesome God can take a curse turn it into a blessing for your life because he loves you and he shows his incredible grace upon you. You know, interesting things I mean, praise God we and again this is things given to us here under the Mosaic law, we're under grace. How much better for us. Again, we look at these prohibitions to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Christ has become our peace and now the Bible says the New Testament invitation is whoever will may freely come. It doesn't matter if you're a Moabite. It doesn't matter if you've been wounded or crushed like the castrated person. and people. Some people, they have wounds and they've been hurt and damaged and that's what keeps them from the assembly of the Lord. And, and now the Bible says, whoever will may come, come. A bruised reed, he won't break. A smoking flax, he won't quench. You know, Maybe you have issues or baggage, but, but now the invitation of Jesus is come. Whoever will may come. How awesome the grace that's available to us now because of what Jesus has done for us. Verse six goes on saying, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite. Remember, those were the descendants of Esau because he was the brother of Jacob, the the patriarch of Israel. So they were to show compassion to them because he is your brother. Verse seven, you shall not abhor an Egyptian. Because you were an alien in his land, so they were to give some measure of of favor to the Egyptians, because they were gracious to them as they departed out of their time of bondage. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 9, when the army goes out against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, seems to be a reference to a nocturnal emission or urinating in the midst of the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. He's temporarily ceremonially unclean. Verse 11, but it shall be when evening comes, he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp again. Verse 12, also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement, that's the Bible's way of talking about a shovel, among your equipment and when you dig or when you sit down outside you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. So God's into sanitation very clear <laughs> you know, I imagine i mean you get a big huge camp of literally you know thousands potentially up to two million people and so god says when you need to you know take care of uh your biological needs and relieve yourself god says look you just don't go right outside your tent where your neighbor's you know going to become passing through and goes, look, there's a there's a proper way to do this god says you you walk out, you show respect for others. You go outside the camp, you take your shovel with you, you you dig a hole, and when you're done taking care of things, God says just you know cover over that refuse and and, and keep things again sanitary, hygienic. Again, show God's into every area of practicality. Verse fourteen, he says, For the Lord your God walks here's the reason in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore he says, your camp shall be holy that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So again, God gives this certainly hygiene, certainly sanitation. There's purposes behind this. But connected with this as well, certainly if you look at verse 14, again, we think of these practical things, why is this stuff in the Bible? I mean, But what's ultimately God's concern? You can tell in these verses we're discussing now he wanted the people to be, what? In constant awareness that his presence was among their camp. So he tells them, if a man has an issue in the middle of the night, he's temporarily ceremonial keen, he has to go out and wash. If you have to, you know, use the bathroom, go outside of the camp, there's a proper way to do this, be respectful of others. But then he says, connected to it, verse 14, for, that's a reason word, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. To deliver you and give your enemies over you. Therefore, he says, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. God is saying, Look, even in the very thing of your everyday duties, the most practical affairs, God says, I want you to constantly be in an awareness that I'm among you, that I'm amidst your camp, that I, my presence is among you, and my presence is with you in everything, and therefore honor me. In everything, in everything, God says, honor me, recognize that I'm in your midst and therefore that awareness of God's presence, even in the everyday thing, like going out and relieving themselves to go back. God says, listen, in the midst of that, you will remember the reason why we do this is because God has called us to live holy lives because he's in our midst. He's among us. His presence is with us. And see, the the awareness of the presence of God was to be a motivator to a holy life. It was to be the thing that inspired them to live pure lives and to say, we don't live like everybody else in the world does. Where people would say, you know what? Who cares? I'll make a mess where I want, when I want. It's my life. I'm going to do what I want. And God says, you know what? That's not how my people live. My people don't make messes and say that's your business if clean it up afterwards. If you understand what I'm saying. Because unfortunately, in a very selfish world, that's how a lot of people live. Here, I'll dump on you and I'm gonna move on. You take care of that. And God says, That's not the way my people work. My people will live in such a way where they say, Listen, We live different lives, holy lives, lives where we'll inconvenience ourselves for the benefit and the help and the health of other people. And at times we'll say, yeah, I'll inconvenience myself because it's about more than just me. And because God is among us and we want to honor God in everything, in every little aspect, in every little area of our lives. Well, let's close off there. Let's stand, let's pray.